It's okay to call out heresy. We just got to be careful how we do it. And ultimately, that's what landed this particular church uh, in court. Welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, managing attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Law and Church podcast. My name is Josh Bryant. We're going to do this about once a month where we sit down and we do case studies and talk through uh, different cases in which churches are in court. Uh, and I think it's important for us to do that. Our goal is going to be to just do case studies. Let's talk through how these churches ended up in court, uh, what the dispute is, what are the legal theories, and then what are some things that we can do as church leaders to hopefully lead our congregations and lead our churches to uh, operate and to act in such a fashion that doesn't land us in court for a same or similar reason. So let's jump right into it. The first case I want to talk about is Universal Life Church versus King. This case was heard and is still ongoing right now. Uh, it's over on the West Coast. And uh, ultimately, here's kind of the basic facts of the case. The defendants had a couple of websites in which they called out certain practices or certain uh, past events or, or histories of um, this Universal Life Church. Uh, and it seems like they may have gotten a few things wrong. Uh, they may have uh, done something in which uh, they, they referenced a different church that had a similar name and uh, was going through some hard times or some false beliefs or whatnot. Uh, and so ultimately what happened is this Universal Life Church sued these defendants on three different causes of action or three different legal theories on which they thought they could recover. Uh, the first one was a violation of the Lanham Act, uh, which is the Trademark Act. Uh, the second one was a violation of that state's Consumer Protection Act. And then finally, the third one was a just a common defamation case. Uh, and so we want to talk through those. Ultimately, we as church leaders have to be able to call out heresy when we see it, uh, especially if we have people flocking to a particular heresy and believing that particular heresy. We've got to call it out and we've got to uh, shepherd our flocks and, and teach uh, true and proper theology and biblical belief. And that's part of uh, how we operate a church. It's part, part of what God has has commanded and, and exhorted church leaders and elders or pastors to do. So um, what we need to be careful of, though, is, is the means by which we do that, okay? Because there can be legal ramifications in how we call out that heresy. It's okay to call out heresy. We just got to be careful how we do it. And ultimately, that's what landed this particular church uh, in court is that they were concerned with the means by which uh, th this, this church was mentioned in a public statement. Now, this particular case right now is at a, a pretrial stage. Uh, they were hearing what's called a 12B6 motion, uh, which is a legal uh, term for, for a motion to dismiss a case uh, for failure to state a claim on which uh, the, the court could even grant relief. And so basically, the defendants here were saying, listen, even if all of these things are true, which we don't agree, we don't think they are true, but even if they were true, the court can't give you relief, and here's why, and they'll list out several different legal theories. Either you haven't pled all of the elements of the case, or you know there's something you have to prove, and you haven't even alleged anything that would go to that particular element of proof, or, uh, hey, we can't get jurisdiction here because we're a church, and you can't sue a church 
uh, on, on ecclesiastical or, or theological issues, so forth and so on. Uh, so they're at this particular stage. Now, one of those causes of action was actually dismissed for failure to state a claim. Two of them are ongoing. And so now uh, the parties will do their discovery. They'll go through some other pretrial motions, try to settle the case maybe. Uh, and if not, it will go to trial and then up on appeal if necessary. So uh, ultimately, here's some things we need to pull out of this case. Okay, number one we can get ourselves in a situation where if we're calling out an organization for some sort of heresy, that we actually infringe on that organization's trademark if they have one, all right? So we've got to be careful on that. If we if we malign a trademark or if we um, do something to, to slander a trademark, we can find ourselves in federal court on that particular cause of action. So here are some things that could get us in trouble. So first of all, if we said, well, this organization believes this heretical thing, all right, if they don't actually believe that thing and they have any evidence to prove that they don't, and that organization is trademarked where their, their, their branding, their logo, their name is kind of synonymous where it's protected somehow uh, through the federal trademark law, then under those cases, they can sue you for an infringement or a violation of their trademark, all right? So we don't necessarily really want to just say that, what we need to do is say, this organization has said that they believed this. And then here's what we believe. And so you do both at the same time. You say, here's what this organization has said. Here's what we believe. And if you do both of those things, you're probably going to be okay. All right. Uh, you want to focus your attention on what your church believes. Focus on proper theology, not on the improper theology. Call it out, but focus on what, what your church believes uh, and what you're teaching to your congregation. All right. Second thing, we need to be aware of anything that looks like we could be competing with another church or trying to steal sheep, as it were. Uh, this it goes to the Consumer Protection Act uh, cause of action or, or count that they uh, filed against these defendants. And ultimately, this was one that was dismissed. Uh, they dismissed this cause of action for failure to state a claim on which the court could actually grant any type of relief. Uh, and, and so what happens here in Consumer Protection Act cases is we want to make sure that, that organizations who are trying to sell something and we're you know, wanting to convince people of the gospel, we want people to come to our church. And so there are certain things that we'll advertise or that we'll, we'll push out there for the world to see. Uh, and if we say something that appears to be intended to defraud the public or cause damage to another party, then there could be a, a, a Deceptive Trade Practices Act or a Consumer Protection Act uh, violation. All right. And so uh, the court actually found that the majority of the elements that they needed to prove, they actually properly pled. What, what the court found was, well, you didn't plead that you actually caused any damage to us. And, and you know, a pretend or, or a possible damage is not enough. You actually have to have experienced some sort of damage and, and you need to be able to allege it and prove it. So uh, in this case, they were going to go ahead and, and sustain a Consumer Protection Act claim, uh, except for the fact that they just didn't properly plead their damages. So what does that look like? Well, ultimately, if we call out an organization and say this church believes this or whatnot, and it appears that we're saying something in an attempt to defraud the public and get members from that church to come to our church, and we could be looking at a Consumer Protection Act. So we've got to be careful with those. Not necessarily always a big deal. Uh, probably most of the time not going to have really uh, any way to hold any water under that particular claim, but it can be made. And so we want to make sure that our statements are truthful, that there's nothing that Im implies uh, that we're intending to defraud the public that we're trying to get to come to our church. Certainly we don't want to do that because it's just a, a stain on the name of Christ. And so uh, we've got to be careful with that. And then finally, just a standard common law defamation.
defamation claim. Now, this defamation uh, claim um, ultimately probably isn't going to go anywhere, but it could. We'll see. Um, but ultimately, truth is always an absolute defense to defamation. It's always an absolute defense to defamation. Uh, to defamation. And I, I say always, um, if it's actually a public fact, then it's always a defense. Okay. And so if they have published something and said, this organization believes this, then you're okay. Truth is an absolute defense. Here's where churches get into trouble on defamation or slander or libel. Uh, ultimately, there are certain private facts that should not be disclosed. Okay. And so if, if your church has knowledge of something and it's a private fact and you're saying, well, this organization did this, or this leader of this organization did X, Y, and Z, and that is still a private fact, it's not publicly known, uh, then under those circumstances, you've got to be careful because you could be getting into what's called a breach of privacy or an invasion of privacy tort. Uh, and it's in the same line uh, of, of thought as these defamation and slander and libel cases. But in this case, it's saying, listen, that may be a true statement, but it's a private fact, and I did not intend for that fact to be disclosed, and now you've caused me damages, and I'm going to sue you for it. All right, so we've got to be careful about that. You need to stick to what is public knowledge, what they've said publicly, and so if there's something on their website or if there's an action that the newspapers have reported on, because newspapers get certain privileges under the First Amendment freedom of the press, so if it's public knowledge and it's out there and you need to call that out saying, listen, this is based on, on heretical uh, theology or uh, heretical orthopraxy and how we practice uh, our faith, then at that point, you're okay. But if there's a private fact uh, that's not public knowledge, you need to rein that in and be careful how you do that. Most of the time when we're calling out heresy, it's all going to be public anyways, all right? So that is Universal Life Church versus King. We're going to move on to another case. This is actually a Jewish congregation, Temple Beth Shalom versus Commerce and Industry Insurance Company. Uh, this is a case in which uh, the temple was working to uh, renovate some of its properties. Uh, a subcontractor got hurt, uh, and there was a workers' compensation claim. Uh, and really, this is not about uh, workers' compensation, really not about insurance at all. The crux of this case seems to boil down to a, uh, a legal theory or legal defense that we call estoppel. All right, and let's, let's define that a little bit. Uh, the, the key point is if a church relies on a statement or the conduct of another party to a transaction, then that party is estopped. They are prohibited from arguing that the opposite of their statement is in fact true. All right, now I know that's a mouthful, so let's break that down. First of all, we need to understand it works the other way. So if your church makes a statement and somebody relies on that to their detriment, you cannot come in and say, well, I didn't make that statement, okay? Um, or if you act a certain way and somebody relies on that action to their detriment, you can't come in and say, well, that's not what we meant by that action. You've got to be very careful in those things uh, because it could get you into an estoppel argument. So in this case, what happened is the contractor's insurance company, it seems, it's a little bit vague from the, from the opinion, but the contractor's insurance company acted to assume coverage of a worker's compensation claim, all right? And so when they did that, uh, there's only a certain amount of time in which you can file a worker's compensation claim as an employer. So when that insurance company for the contractor said, yes, we've got coverage here, uh, the church at that point said, okay, well, we don't have to, to do anything, all right? So they relied on that action to assume responsibility for covering this worker's compensation claim, and they did so to their detriment because then the time frame for them to file that claim lapsed. All right, it, it got to a point where they had no no argument because they had relied on the actions of this insurance company. Uh, and what the court said is, look, the insurance company here 
acted to assume responsibility for this particular claim, it cannot now argue that it is not responsible after it took actions to assume that responsibility and the church relied on it to their detriment. All right. So here's the, the caveat here. Churches do far too much by handshake, all right? Get things in writing and do what the writing says, all right? And if there's ever a question, you need to get legal counsel involved when you're uncertain of what to do. Deviations from any kind of a contract or any failure to get uh, legal counsel before acting or speaking on legal issues can lead to cases like this one, all right? And so uh, before you don't file a workers' compensation claim, or before you don't file a claim with your insurance company, or before you decide you're going to do something that could affect your bylaws or the employment of a person or how you interact with a vendor uh, for your church, you need to call and get legal counsel so that you know that these rights are protected, that you don't get into a situation where you could be stopped or somebody else could be stopped from making that particular argument. All right. Uh, the next one, we're going to go to Shiloh Ministries Incorporated versus Simcoe Exploration Company. Uh, this is um, an interesting case. It really deals with two issues, property and contract, but the contract issue is really tied in with the property issue. And so I want to focus some time on that. Number one, Sometimes churches are gifted properties that are subject to ongoing contractual obligations, and it seems like this was the case here where one church maybe closed its doors and gifted some property to another church. Uh, and in this case, that property was subject to an oil and gas lease, okay, which is good because it can generate money for the church, and that's, that's all well and good. Uh, one issue off the bat under situations like that is you've got to be careful and make sure you're paying your property taxes. Uh, the income earned is probably taxable as unrelated business income tax, uh, and I'm going to go and say most probably uh, that is the case. Uh, there may be some situations in which it's not, but we need to take a look at it. Make sure you're paying your unrelated business income tax on that. And then the property itself, um, if it's not part of the church property or if it's adjacent to the church property, ultimately it's probably not exempt from property taxes. Uh, and so you got to be careful when you assume property like that subject to those leases. Uh, if you take that property and you are now subject to the lease, you need to make sure that your tax uh, situation is in order there, okay? Uh, the issue in this particular case was whether the oil company had to remove pipes and such from what the church believed was a dry well. Uh, it didn't seem like they were producing any oil and they weren't getting any revenue off of it. And so they were wanting the, the oil company to go ahead and break down their equipment and move on. The court said, no, they don't have to do that. And they granted what's called a prescriptive easement. And we'll talk about what that is. But ultimately, these pipes went underneath the parking lot of the church. Uh, and so there were pipes that took oil from one parcel to another and then out uh, into the field. And so uh, these pipes went underneath a parking lot that the church had had laid down subsequent to the oil and gas lease coming in. Well, ultimately, it was causing some damage to the parking lot. And so they were saying, hey, listen, you need to pull these pipes out and repair the parking lot. And the court said, no, you're not going to have to do that because that's going to require this oil company who, by the way, you haven't proven that it's a dry well. Uh, you haven't even alleged uh, all the things necessary to show that it's dry well. Ultimately, uh, that's going to require them to come in and demolish this parking lot, which wasn't there to begin with uh, when they first put the pipes in. And then they're going to have to come in and repair all that parking lot. Uh, and that's not really a fair thing to do. So what we're going to do as a court is we're going to grant this prescriptive easement that says they have an easement through your property and they have the right to keep it there. Another reason they granted this prescriptive easement was they said, listen, 
You had this lease agreement in place for 30 years. You knew those pipes were there for 30 years. Uh, and so this is in property law, what we call an adverse possession. You've probably heard of it, uh, which basically says, listen, they have had those pipes there in an open and notorious manner for more than 30 years. So under the circumstances, it's not fair to say they have no ownership interest in the property. They at least have an easement. Now, the court also found that since the prescriptive easement is equitable in remedy, meaning that it's a matter of fairness and not necessarily a matter of law per se, that it's not really fair or it's inequitable to require the church to maintain that area of the easement. So this appellate court sent it back down to the trial court to figure out uh, how much the oil company needed to contribute to the maintenance of that easement. All right, so be careful when you're taking property, make sure you know what the easements are, make sure um, you kind of know what contracts you're, you're gonna be subject to and so forth. Uh, another case I just wanna bring out real quick, we got a couple more that we're gonna talk through, three more. Uh, the first one is John Doe versus Boy Scouts and the LDS Church. The only reason I wanna bring this up, this case comes across my desk all the time. And I only bring it up because this litigation started in 2013 and they've not had a trial yet. And it's a, it's a child molestation case um, where these, children have sued the Boy Scouts and the Latter-day Saints um, as a result of some mol uh, child molestation that took place uh, in a uh, Latter-day Saints facility. So we've got to be careful. Uh, we've got to protect our children against child abuse in our churches. And this is especially the case when we're bringing in third parties or allowing third parties to use our church facilities uh, and work with children in those church facilities like Boy Scouts or any other organization like a Boys and Girls Club or an after-school program, so forth. It's okay to do that, but when you do that, it does not remove your responsibility to make sure that the people working with children should be working with children. And so you need to have some sort of indemnity agreement in place saying, listen, you understand that it is your responsibility as the person or the organization renting this property to do background checks and make sure we've got uh, people who are working with kids uh, properly vetted um, or you need to talk through what their policy is or ultimately you just need to make them follow your policy and go through your steps to vet their people. Um, that way your church is protected as, uh, assuming anything actually happens uh, and, and you just wanna make sure that you've got proper supervision or you want to put all the liability on them. So either you put all of the liability on that third party who's using your facilities and working with kids, or you say, okay, well, we're gonna assume responsibility for the supervision here and we're gonna supervise this. If you do something in between, it puts you in a weird situation where you're not sure who's liable. Uh, and we wanna make sure that that risk uh, of loss is clear. And there are a whole bunch of ways you can do that. A contract is the best way. Uh, second to last case here, we're gonna talk through Calvary Pentecostal Church versus Foxstone Group. You know, here in a few weeks, we're gonna be talking about church business joint ventures on the podcast. Uh, and these are, are fine things. They can be good ways of using church facilities during the week, and they can be good ways of, of reaching the community uh, and, and getting the community out there and partnering with business and so forth and so on. But we've gotta be careful. And we'll talk about that a lot more here in the future. Uh, in this particular case, this was an effort to redevelop some land surrounding a church. Uh, and ostensibly what would happen is the church would sell that land and then share in the profits from the development. So for example, if they sold land um, for more than, than it was worth or whatever, they would split that property with the, or split that profit with the developer. Or if they built uh, an apartment complex next to the church, uh, and there was rent coming in, they would split those rents with the developer. Okay, so that seems like how that particular joint venture would go. All right, so uh, there, there are a lot of issues that we need to bring up here in this particular context, all right? Number one, we've gotta be careful with handwritten language on contracts, okay? This one actually worked to the benefit of the church, but ultimately it was written on 
a contract, an initial by both sides, I'm sure, uh, that, that this is a non-binding agreement, that this is just a preliminary non-binding agreement, all right? Well, what the law says about contract interpretation is that handwritten statements that contradict typewritten statements win, okay? And so if you handwrite something in, that's going to be presumed to be what you're following if it contradicts something else in the contract. And in this case, because they said this is a non-binding agreement, when they were sued for breach of contract, the court said, sorry, you've got it handwritten in there that this is a non-binding agreement. There are other issues to, to deal with as a result of that, but um, we'll talk to those in just a minute. Second thing, in any kind of joint venture, the parties owe each other a, a duty, a fiduciary duty of good faith and fair dealing. All right. And so that means you've got to act in good faith. Uh, you've got to be honest and reasonable in how you're dealing with somebody. Uh, and you've got to be fair in how you're dealing with them. You can't compete with them. You can't do anything that's going to pull money out of the joint venture or could cause financial harm to the joint venture or undermine uh, the, the process and what we're going to be doing. So you got to make sure everybody's aware of that when you're going into it, okay? If you're going to waive arguments under fiduciary duty, you can do that. There are situations in which you might want to. Uh, ultimately, I think that's probably a bad idea most of the time, but you need to spell those things out clearly in your contract documents, all right? Finally, you've got to be careful with the possibility that the church could be unjustly enriched. And that was the final claim that this particular developer made against this church. They said, listen, You've been enriched here. You have you have uh, been financially enriched, or you've gotten more uh, publicity because we've talked about this venture publicly, or hey, we've referred people to you, and now you're kicking us out. Who knows what the actual situation was? But ultimately, they said you've been enriched at our expense, and it's not fair. Uh, and that's another equitable remedy. This is uh, a matter of fairness. Uh, under the circumstances in this particular case, that didn't go anywhere, and it was kicked out. But basically, this can happen in a whole bunch of contexts. Okay, uh, it could be, for example, that the electric company misreads the, the 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 meter on your church for two or three years. All right, now there's not a, necessarily a contract in place, but if they came in and said, "Hey, they underpaid by X amount of dollars, uh, and they were unjustly enriched, even though it was our fault, they got the service, and now they're not paying for it." That's an unjust enrichment claim. They can come in and say, "Hey, sorry, you uh, you you've been enriched, uh, and it wasn't proper for you to be enriched in that way." All right. So last case that I want to talk about, a fresh church versus city of Winchester. This is a religious liberty case, uh, and it's uh, going to be interesting to see how this one plays plays out. Uh, there are cases like this all over the country, and it happens very frequently where churches and the municipalities in which they reside get into a legal battle over zoning laws, all right? Uh, the federal law in play here is called the Religious Use of Land and Institutionalized Persons Act. It was passed by uh, the federal Congress and signed into law uh, to basically undo a United States Supreme Court case uh, that made it a little bit easier for church for municipalities uh, to kind of pigeonhole churches and keep them out of certain areas or so forth. So ultimately what uh, the Religious Use of Land and Institutionalized Persons Act says is, number one, zoning ordinance cannot burden the exercise of religion on their face, and local governments cannot apply, number two, zoning laws that discriminate against churches uh, in, in any fashion, okay? So there's there's two things. Number one, it can't be facially uh, burdensome on churches, and so if you have a zoning ordinance that says, hey, we're going to go ahead and allow a church here, but you can't uh, have uh, sound that can be heard in the hallway, well, that's not really reasonable, uh, and they're going to have a hard time enforcing that particular ordinance under the uh, RULIPA. So um, those situations are relatively rare. What is more frequent is this unequal treatment uh, where a local government applies a zone 
zoning law in a discriminatory manner, meaning they deny a church a permit or deny a church the ability to utilize a, a property zoned industrial or zoned residential or whatnot, but they've given other people in similar situations as, as a business or whatnot a similar license uh, or a, a permit to do those things. And so now you're treating people differently based on the same ordinance. And the only difference is that this is a religious organization and this one's not. All right. So that seems to be the best claim in this case. And it's the one that's certainly most commonly made. Um, in this particular case, uh, they allege, the church alleged that there were other large gatherings in the area and that they were given permission to have those gatherings by the city, but now the city's not gonna allow this church to have a one time a week meeting. Uh, and so that seems to be a discriminatory treatment of, uh, of these two organizations. Why are you treating them differently than uh, us? Uh, and, and ultimately it, it certainly looks like it could be religious discrimination there. And so uh, ultimately this happens a lot when there are gonna be church plants and, and listen, in this case, there are other issues at play, but that's the one I wanna pull out. Uh, but church plants, um, church revitalization, if you're moving your church, things like that, this type of stuff comes into play. If you're doing a launching a multi-site, uh, this type of stuff comes into play. And we need to talk through these things that the key about RUL IPA claims is that you've got to make sure you do it right on the front end, because if you don't, your ability to introduce evidence when you sue is limited, okay? So you've got to exhaust all of your remedies um, in, in an administrative setting with the planning commission and with the city council and mayor and yada, yada, yada. Uh, you, you've got to, to exhaust all those remedies and you most of the time have to get all your evidence in right there because if you don't do it properly, then when you sue and appeal that decision, uh, you're gonna have a hard time uh, sometimes getting that evidence in. It could hurt your case. And I've seen it more times than not where those cases are lost simply because they didn't put the evidence in at the proper time. So get help on the front end if you start running into zoning issues. Wow, Josh, that is uh, there was so so much information in all of those cases, and uh, obviously this is going to benefit a lot of a lot of church leaders out there. But you know, there were several of those cases that talked about joint ventures and just really businesses being involved with in, in churches uh, to to more of an extent. Uh, talked a little bit about that with us. Yeah, and we're going to talk about joint ventures uh, between churches and businesses here in a couple of weeks with Dr. Rayner, um, but we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, and, and, you know, there were two cases here. Uh, one was the Simcoe exploration case, and the other one was the Foxstone case, uh, both of which involved businesses that were working with the church and providing income to the church. One was an oil and gas lease. Another one was an, uh, a kind of a, a quasi-agreement or a, a non-binding agreement that they were going to explore uh, a development of, of church property uh, surrounding the church in terms of maybe adding apartments or residential real estate or uh, whatever uh, to to this area around the church. And so uh, as we see more of that, you know, we can we can have all the theological debates we want to about whether a church should rely on joint venture income as a, as a means of financing the church. Um, and, and certainly I agree that that believers should be tithing and, and that needs to be the primary focus. But ultimately, I think it's more important for the church to exist and take money uh, from a from a business perspective uh, and, and work in these joint ventures. I think there's a lot of good that can come from that. I think that's certainly better than churches being in financial straits and closing their doors. And so 
Uh, we're going to see um, in the next few years, I think, a lot of churches who are doing some of these things in terms of setting up joint ventures so that um, uh, the, the facilities are used more during th- uh, throughout the week. Uh, you know, there are, are tons of opportunities for churches to do missions and to do ministry through an actual business process. Uh, And so I think we're going to see more and more of that, but we've got to be careful in doing it. Uh, Churches who are going to get into this type of work need to make sure that they've got good legal counsel and somebody with a good business mind uh, who's kind of taking a look at these things. We don't want churches to end up in court uh, with a joint venture because that really kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, If we're going to do this, we want to do it right. We want to make sure that uh, the reputation of Christ and the reputation of his church uh, in the community is maintained. Uh, and and ultimately, it's just going to require us to make sure we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's. So get good legal counsel involved, get good accountants involved, get good uh, business minds involved in these things. Uh, and ultimately, I think it can be good not only for the church, but for the church's mission as we go and make disciples in every context, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week and sometimes in those business contexts. Josh, tell us what you've got going on over at Church General Council. Well, let me tell you a little bit about our hotline suite. You know, a lot of pastors really don't need an attorney on retainer for their church. They really just need somebody that they can call for a quick answer to a question. Uh, And so one of the services that we offer is a hotline. And so for just $8.49 a month, you'll have access by email or phone to our church lawyer hotline, and you can get quick answers to your questions. You're also going to get access uh, to all of the webinars that we do. Normally, the cost to attend that webinar is $14.99. So if you attend seven of the 40 or so webinars that we're going to do in a year, this is really going to pay for itself. Uh, Our webinars are fully interactive, so you really don't want to miss out on those things. And then for $24.99 a month, uh, you can get all of those things plus some free document review and access to our sample policy manual online. And then if you go one step further for $39.99 a month, you'll get all that plus some custom document drafting and expanded access hours to a church attorney. So each level that you move up also moves you up on our priority lists in terms of getting you taken care of. So you want to go check that out at churchgeneralcouncil.com. That's our hotline suite. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law and Church. Make sure you check out lawandchurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links. Everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week.